Our sermon passage this morning comes from Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. Philippians 1, 12 to 14. Our scripture reading that we'll read first uh, comes from Acts chapter 28, verses 17 to 31. This is going to provide the sort of the situational context for the Apostle Paul, for what he's writing to the Philippians there in uh, chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. It's a, it's a bit of an extended passage, but nothing that's uh, too unusual for us here. Uh, and so I would ask you, as we read God's Word, as we read Acts 28 and Philippians 1, that you would give your full attention to it, because it is just that. It's God's Word. It's the Lord speaking to you. So please, brothers and sisters, listen as His Word is read. Acts 28, verses 17 to 31. After three days, He called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, He said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For, for with regard to this sect, we know that, everyone it is, that, that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came back to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now turning, if you will, to Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. This ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for the power of your spirit that is on display in these two passages from which we've read. We thank you for the way in which your spirit empowers and enlivens your word and makes it into what it truly is, a double-edged sword. We thank you that you use your word, you wield your word with authority and that by it you draw sinners to faith in Jesus Christ, rebellious sinners who hate you. 
You woo them with your word. You subdue them with your word. You bring them home. We thank you, dear Lord, that you have brought us home. We thank you that you called us out, that you've placed us in your sheepfold. Lord, we pray that you would teach us from your word this morning. We pray that by your spirit, the preaching of your word would be made effective. We pray that you'd bless the one who preaches, but also, O oh Lord, bless those who hear. May you build us up in our faith, but more importantly, O oh Lord, may you be glorified now in the preaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're in Philippians this morning. We've read from the book of Acts this morning, but I'm going to start off in the book of 1 Corinthians to sort of set the stage, the way that, uh, a way that might help us to think about what Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 1. Paul tells the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1 that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and he chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And Paul continues, he says that God chose what is low and despised in the world so that no human being could boast in the presence of God. And Paul here, if you understand the context of 1 Corinthians 1 where this passage is found, he's speaking of the folly, according to the world, of the preaching of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's folly, he says, to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to those who are being saved. Now some might conclude from that, from, from what God chose to do in sovereignly ordaining for Paul to be imprisoned, that this was a double folly. Preaching is foolish enough. But then God, in his, his sovereign power, according to his divine plan, he ordains it for Paul to be imprisoned. That's a double foolishness. Some may be tempted to think that. Using the preaching of the gospel by mere men, weak and feeble and foolish men at that, oftentimes, most times, all times, to bring people into the kingdom of God was foolish enough. But having the primary evangelist of the early church end up under house arrest, chained to one of Nero's praetorian guards, how much more foolish would that be seen in the eyes of men? It doesn't seem to be a great way to reach people with the gospel. It doesn't seem to be a good way to recruit future evangelists to proclaim the gospel. Being in jail doesn't seem like a good model for church growth. And yet this is the model that the Lord employs. All of these things don't seem to work out. And so it might seem counterintuitive to read what Paul says in the first few verses of our passage this morning. I want you to know, brothers, he, he writes that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now what has happened to him is what we read in Acts chapter 28. He's under house arrest. We're going to get to that in a moment. But no doubt that his Philippian brothers and sisters had been tempted to despair when they first heard the news that Paul was imprisoned. How is he to continue on in his call to be a missionary to the Gentiles when he's no longer free? They were the direct recipients, the, the direct beneficiaries of his missionary activity as he stepped foot onto European soil for the first time and marched his way into Philippi and immediately started engaging with the people there in the town. And, and, and within moments, it would seem, you read the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16, it seems like it's just moments before people start coming to faith in Christ because of what Paul has done. And now he's in, in prison. 
Well, those of you who have read Sinclair Ferguson, those of you who are familiar with him, you, you can imagine uh, the, the, the great words that he has on this situation that Paul finds himself in. He writes in his, in his commentary on uh, Philippians, he says, From a human point of view, his freedom had been curbed, and therefore his evangelistic mission seemed to be at an end. From a human boy of view, it's over. But in fact, as he now realized, as Paul now realized, his imprisonment was part of the divine strategy to advance the gospel by bringing it to people who would otherwise never hear it. And Ferguson goes on to write about the Roman, how the Roman soldiers who were assigned to guard Paul would have no hope of hearing the gospel other than by having a Christian missionary come into their custody. They wouldn't have sought Paul out. And so God sent Paul to them. Ferguson continues, How then could the good news about Christ break into the world of the Roman army only if Paul were to have extended periods in the company of Roman soldiers? Prison was the ideal setting for such an evangelistic outreach. And so if imprisonment was the prerequisite for mission, a prisoner Paul would become. And then Ferguson writes this money quote. They, that is the Philippians, they knew that when a Christian such as Paul places his life at the disposal of Christ, no circumstances can ever prove to be a final barrier to the advance of the gospel. The Philippians knew this because they had experienced it. Of all of the churches Paul would have been writing letters to from his Roman imprisonment, the Philippian church would have the greatest appreciation for what God can do inside a jail cell. Paul writes these verses, verses 12 to 14, to the Philippian church the way you would tell of close friend news that you know that they above all would truly appreciate. He wants his brothers and sisters to know he is thrilled And he knows they will be thrilled as well that what has happened to him, his imprisonment of all unlikely things, has served to advance the gospel. It's not a retreat. It's not a retraction. It's not an entrenchment. It is an advance. Now this word, translated advance in the ESV, it's furtherance in the King James and the New King James. It's greater progress in the New American Standard. This word is a word that most likely originates from a Greek nautical term for making headway into a wind. Sort of counterintuitive, isn't it? You don't go into a wind when you're in a sailing ship, do you? Well, there there are ways, there are tacks that you can choose. I'm not a sailing expert by any way, but you can make headway into a wind, believe it or not, with with a sailing ship. And this commentator that I'm quoting from here, he goes on to say, which ultimately came to indicate to make progress, to, dr- to thrive. And perhaps because of its nautical origins and, and because people have been conducting warfare on the sea for a time immemorial, it became to be used to refer to military success. So Paul is at least hinting at the fact that the gospel is making a militaristic advance upon the Roman military. He's getting in there. The gospel, we should say, is getting in there. It's advancing on the the might of the Roman Empire, an empire that is openly hostile to the gospel. The gospel is subduing its military, is what Paul is at least hinting at here in these verses. And that's what Paul will essentially be saying in verses 13 and 14. And as one commentator puts it, the gospel is an unstoppable military advance among Caesar's elite forces. 
Now, we don't know at what point in Paul's imprisonment in Rome it was that he wrote this letter to the Philippians. But reading chapter 28 of the book of Acts, you get a picture of this advance of the gospel that Paul is is writing about in our passage. After enduring many hardships, I encourage you to read all of chapter 28. Maybe when you go home this afternoon, you've got a little time before your afternoon nap. Pick up Acts 28 and read the whole thing, the passages, uh, the verses that that we didn't include this morning. He endured many hardships to get to Rome. He finally arrives in Rome after three days, presumably for rest, which he would have, would have needed after the arduous months-long journey to get to Rome. We read in Acts chapter 28, verse 17, that Paul called together the local leaders of the Jews and explained to them his situation. His first instinct is to get his, his Jewish brothers together and talk to them. Talk about, uh, to them about the reason that he's in prison. Talk to them about his Lord. It's his first instinct. He says in verse 20, For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see and see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And that's all that's recorded of Paul speaking about the gospel to the Jewish leaders. Now, this was just a hint of the gospel. But then in verse 22, the Jews tell Paul that they desire to hear what Paul's views are. For with regard to this sect, we know, no, we know that everything it is, uh, everywhere it is spoken against. And so the Jewish leaders, they set a date upon which they're going to come back and they're going to hear more from Paul. And when they return, there's even more of them coming in. They're all interested. They they don't know anything about this man, Paul. They haven't heard anything negative about him. They know about Christianity. They've heard it's a dangerous, heretical sect. More come in. They're crowded into whatever room, whatever house Paul happens to be in under house arrest. And he spent that day when they come back from morning till evening trying to convince them from the law of Moses and from the prophets, shorthand for the Hebrew Old Testament, the the Old Old Testament, the Bible of the Jews. He spends morning till evening trying to convince them about Jesus, that he's the Messiah, that he's the one who was promised, prophesied, spoken of in the Old Testament. And verse 24 of Acts chapter 28 says that some were convinced by what he said. But others disbelieved. And they all departed when Paul made this mic drop statement beginning in verse 25. He just kind of drops it there. And they, and they all leave. Verse 25, beginning there, we read, The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will, hear, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. In other words, those who are continuing in their disbelief. He's not speaking to the ones who did believe. It sounds like maybe just a few of the ones who were there believed. The ones who are continuing in their disbelief, he's saying, God prophesied in Isaiah that he was going to go after the Gentiles. He was going to bring them in. Now, chapter 28, the book of Acts, ends with Luke writing in verses 31 and 32 that Paul lived there in Rome for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And I think here we can safely infer, we've talked a lot about the Philippian church's contributions, financial contributions to Paul. Where did he get the money to live at his own expense under house arrest in Rome? Well, at least a portion of that 
came from the Philippian church. It's one of the reasons he's writing the letter. He is, in a sense, giving them a missionary update. Here's what I've been up to. Here's my activity. It goes on still today with our missionaries that go out. To the very end, Paul never gave up on his Jewish brethren. To the very end, based on everything that his fellow Jews had done to him, it wouldn't have been surprising to see Paul simply shake the dust off of his feet and move on, refusing to preach ever again to the Jewish people. And yet here, nearing the end of his life, Paul makes sure to invite the Jews in Rome to come and to hear about Jesus. It's the first thing he does. And by God's grace, a few believed. But the real advance of the gospel in the book of Acts, the the, the entirety of the book, it happens among the Gentiles, among the pagans, among those who were not God's people, but who became God's people. To everyone who came to him during his two-year imprisonment, Paul preached Jesus Christ with boldness and without hindrance. And as he tells the Philippians, the gospel advanced. Militaristically, it went forward. It broke down the strongholds. It was the fulfillment of what Jesus promised in Matthew when he told Peter, the gates of hell will not prevail against this church that I will build. And Jesus there is suggesting an advancing army against the gates of, of Satan's hell. Now back to our sermon passage. Paul says in verse 13, It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now as surprising as this might have been to some of those who heard Paul's letter read to them at church on a Sunday morning in Philippi, and that's what they did. The letters circulated, they went to the church, the church read them. They they understood that Paul's letters were the word of God to be read in a church service. So as surprising as it might have been, there was at least one man and his family who knew exactly what happens when earthly powers try to imprison the gospel. And you know who I'm talking about, don't you? The Philippian jailer. He and his family would have been nodding their heads in agreement. They would have had smiles on their face because of the personal experience of how the gospel advances when God's human instruments are behind bars. And one commentator writes about this. This is all quite ironic. The forces of the empire have taken captive and seemingly shut down the one, that is Paul, who dares to inspire revolt through proclaiming a Roman crucified Jewish revolutionary speaker. While he is shut down, the gospel cannot be. They think they've shut him down. The Jews are happy to be rid of him. What a a foolish person he was to invoke his Roman citizenship. And when he did so, they were compelled to take him to Rome. To to speak, uh, having Caesar, uh, Nero as an audience. They thought they had shut him down. Seen the last of him. And here he pops up in Rome. The first thing he does is, is, is to send messages out to his Jewish brothers and sisters. And he's at it again. And for two years, he will not stop. That's what Paul is essentially saying to Timothy in the passage from 2 Timothy that's quoted at the top of the order of worship in your bulletins this morning. Paul is suffering. He is bound in chains because he preached the gospel, but the word of God is not bound. The word of God cannot be hemmed in. It can't be hindered. It can't be stopped. 
And what Paul is telling the Philippians is proof of that. Now let's get into a little bit of, of, of background or detail about this imperial guard, the Praetorian Guard. It's, uh, in the Greek, it's the Praetorian Guard. It's, it's there. It's, it's a Latin loan word. It's, it's talking about the elite of the elite. These are the special forces of Nero's army. They are the, they are, they are, they are the revolutionary guard. When you think about uh, Iran or, or Iraq, got, he's got a special large unit of soldiers that surround him. They, they're, the, they're the top of the line. They're the guys that, that, the, that the, the heavy-duty guys look up to and say, wow, these are the cream of the crop. The Imperial Guard, or the Praetorian Guard, was made up of roughly 10,000 soldiers, nine or 10,000, depending on the estimates, comprising Caesar's elite guard. And Caesar, of course, at this time, would have been none other than Nero, the great enemy of the church. Now, Paul might have been speaking somewhat hyperbolically here. He might have been just speaking, a, you know, a little bit grandiosely here, but, but honesty was a pretty big deal to Paul. Is it not one to normally outright lie, but how could it happen that 10,000 Roman soldiers could have heard the reason why he was imprisoned? That's impossible. He didn't have Facebook or Twitter. He couldn't have gotten this out back then. Well, one commentator lays out a fairly reasonable explanation for it. You have to consider this. Think about the, the, the way that this would work. It's possible that, that Paul was chained to a member of the Imperial Guard, and he was. He was chained to them 24 hours a day, and those shifts of those guards were somewhere between a three and a four and a six hour shift. Around the clock, day after day, for two years. That's 730 days. If what he says, what Luke says there at the end of Acts is, is true. I have no reason to believe that it's not. That's a total of 17,520 hours for those of you who love to crunch numbers. I had to use a calculator, but I'm sure some of you have already done the math in your head. Even if all the guards were with Paul for the six-hour shifts, that could potentially put him in contact with nearly 3,000 of those 10,000 guards, assuming a new guard uh, was there for every shift. There was no repetition. Now, now, double that number if they all did three-hour shifts. Now, most likely the soldiers would have more than one shift with Paul. So we can't say that as many as 6,000 members of the Praetorian Guard were exposed to the teachings of Paul. Most, more than likely, a, a, a guard member would, would have at least spent a couple of times, a couple of shifts with Paul. So it probably wouldn't have been somewhere between 3,000 and 6,000 unique visitors with Paul, but you get the picture. Think about the stories that Paul would have told these men. Think about the, the accounts of his missionary journeys, his, his shipwrecks, his being bitten by a snake in Malta, his being near death on multiple occasions. These stories would have made their way through the Imperial Guard. Military people eat this kind of thing up. They love it. It would have worked its way through this relatively small unit within the overall Roman army. And it's safe to assume that some of the soldiers, hearing these stories second or third hand, would have wanted to hear them with their own ears. And so it's safe to conclude that, I'd say a good conservative estimate, is a thousand or two of the Praetorian guards sat with Paul for a minimum of three hours. What do you think Paul is going to do for those three hours? What do you think? He's got to get some sleep in there somehow. He's got to attend to his physical and bodily needs. 
But just as Paul wasted no time upon his arrival at Rome and contacting the Jewish uh, leaders there and inviting them over so that he could tell them about Jesus for whom he was imprisoned, so he would have wasted no time. He would have not wasted a minute. Every minute with these Praetorian guards would have been precious to him. And of course, it sounds like his house in which he's under house arrest was a revolving door of people coming through. And so he's preaching and teaching all of the time and the guards are right there to hear it. What Paul is saying in verse 13 is that the reason for his, the reason for his imprisonment, the reason that it has, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the reason that he is imprisoned, it has spread to all 10,000 members of the Imperial Guard. That's what he's saying. Now, not all would have believed, but it's reasonable to expect that some of them did. Some lives of the Imperial Guard were changed forever by what they heard from the mouth of this wretched prisoner. And because of what has happened in the Imperial Guard as a result of Paul's proclaiming the good news to its members, Paul says in verse 14 that most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So not only has Paul been afforded the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to preach the gospel to a group of men who by nature and military environment would have been very hostile to it, and generally speaking, military people are pretty hostile to things like that, but now the successes of the Holy Spirit that he's brought among these very hardened people, it's emboldened, emboldened others to go and do the same. Now, most people don't go out and seek to become martyrs. Most people avoid hardship and pain. And when you see one of your brothers thrown into prison because of the proclamation of, the, of Christ, the natural tendency is to pull back and say, I do not want to do the same thing that that person did. I'm not going to make that mistake. I don't want to be in prison. And perhaps that had been the case for some of the brothers of whom Paul speaks in verse 14. But most of them now, seeing how God has used Paul in his imprisonment to bring the gospel to pagan soldiers, have become confident that the Lord can use them in the same way. Paul understands. If he understands nothing else, he understands this one thing. He has been put there by God for the purpose of preaching to these lost soldiers. That's what he says just a few verses down. In chapter 1, verse 16, we read, The latter do it out of love. He's speaking of, of these uh, kind of factions who are preaching Christ. Some do it out of love. Some do it out of, of envy or hatred. Um, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Paul has been ordained to be there in prison. God put him there. He understands that this is his God-given role. This is his lot in life, and he embraces it. God ordained for Paul to be in that place at that time for the purpose of bringing at least some of the imperial guard to faith in Jesus Christ. All of the hardships, the shipwrecks, the beatings, the starvation, all of this served God's purpose of bringing Paul to these soldiers in Rome so that some of them, so that they could come into contact with the good news and, and some of them embrace it in faith. And so the next time someone tells you, and, and you've probably all heard this, and if you haven't, you will. They hear, they hear about Christianity or, or your version of it, right? You're talking to a college 
friend or, or some acquaintance that you've made, and you're telling them about the gospel, and you tell them, you quote John 14:6 to them. The only way to the Father is by the Son. I am the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father by me except by me. It's so exclusivistic, and it sounds terrible and harsh. And well, what about these people who'll never hear of Jesus Christ? You've heard this. You know this argument. The next time you hear it, you can tell them. You can take them through the book of Acts. And you can say, here is what God does to ensure that every single person who belongs to him will come into his kingdom. God will not, he will not allow one of his little ones to be lost. He will send a man across a sea, making him endure all kinds of hardships, being bitten by a a viper on the island of Malta, and everybody thinks he's going to die, and they're just watching him, kind of waiting for him to pop, what the Maltese people are doing. God will do that if he has some people in Rome who belong to him. He'll do it. If people who belong to him live on a desert island in the South Pacific, he is going to make sure that somebody reaches them with the gospel because that is the appointed means by which he calls people to faith in Jesus Christ, the preaching of God's word. He will ensure it. These people are too precious to him. He will not suffer it for any of them to be lost. All you have to do is to point to the example of Paul and what God did to him in order that some might be saved. And I think we can say with full assurance that even if there was just one person in the city of Rome, that God would have sent Paul or at least someone there to ensure that that person heard the good news. Well, what's more, Paul understood this. He wasn't brought forcibly to Rome against his will. He was brought forcibly to Rome, but it wasn't against his will. His will had become so subordinated to God's will that he shared God's will, whatever that will may be. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. God will not fail to bring every single one of his elect unto saving faith. Not one who belongs to him will be lost. Not one. The God we love because he first loved us is the God who was unwilling to spare even his only begotten son, but offered him up for the sake of his elect. And so, brothers and sisters, we can trust in this, that God will do what it takes to spare those whom he loves from the eternal punishment in hell. He will ensure that those who need to hear the gospel will hear the gospel so that the full number of those who belong to him will be brought home. And God does not care if the world thinks that the means that he employs are foolish, or at least look foolish to them. He doesn't care. He's not daunted by it. The preaching of the word, what a feeble way to bring people to faith in Christ. The preaching of the word by sinful men. How could that possibly go wrong? How could it not go wrong from a human perspective? And yet that is the way that God has chosen to draw sinners to himself. 
Left to ourselves, none of us would choose Christ. So God does not leave his people to themselves. He will ensure that his elect hear the good news, even if that means that the bringer of the good news has to suffer in the process of bringing it. That's how much God loves lost sinners. That's how much he loves you and me. He's willing for some to suffer in order for his people to be saved. He was willing for his son to suffer. He was willing for Paul to suffer. He's willing for us to suffer if that suffering means, by that suffering it means that some will come to faith in Jesus Christ. He's willing for that to happen. And when we realize that, when we realize whether, whether we're a preacher or not, when we adopt the mindset that Paul has there, I am willing to suffer everything. If it means that even one of God's elect would come to faith in Jesus Christ, I'll suffer anything for that. I know what it was like before I knew Jesus Christ. I know what it's like for those who are perishing without Jesus Christ. I understand the torments that they will endure. If you have that mindset, you're willing to put up with suffering. You're willing to put up with a little inconvenience. You're willing to put up with some pain. You're willing to endure some hardship so that you can be like Paul, who I think it's safe to say was glad that he sat under house arrest for two years, chained to one of Nero's elite soldiers. He was glad because he was able to preach Christ and him crucified. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that in your almighty power, in your great and good wisdom, that you have seen fit to confound the wise by what they think is weak. We thank you, dear Lord, that you go against the conventional wisdom of the day that you use what is regarded by the world as silly things, preaching of the word by frail and fallible men, to make sure that your lost sheep are brought home. Lord, we pray that you would continue to raise up men to preach the gospel, but that you would also, dear Lord, raise up members of Christ's church who are willing to go out of their way to suffer inconvenience or even hardship in order for those who are lost to hear the good news. We pray, dear Lord, that you would help us to know that, that the pain we have here on earth, the suffering we have here on earth, it is temporary. It cannot last forever. But there is a weight of eternal glory that we will enjoy. And we pray, dear Lord, that you would help us to want others to enjoy it as well. Oh Lord, we cannot hear passages such as the one here from Philippians and the one from Acts without thinking of those like Reverend Andrew Brunson who are imprisoned. Lord, we know that he is not alone. There are others. It's hard for us to, to think about what Paul endured without thinking about them. And so we pray once again for them, dear Lord, for those who are in chains because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, we wish for them to be set free, and yet we pray at the same time that you would use them in a mighty way. 
what an incredible opportunity for Muslim men in Turkey to hear the gospel who would not hear it otherwise. Lord, we, we wouldn't wish what is happening to Reverend Brunson on anyone, and yet, dear Lord, we know that this happens because of your divine appointment. And so we pray, dear Lord, that you would give him and all the others who are in chains for Jesus Christ all of the grace that they need, that you would sustain them, O Lord, by your spirit, that you would be with them, and that you would use them. Lord, we pray that they would be willing instruments in your almighty hand. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.